Welcome to Mindful Living with me, your host, Athea Davis, where I help you thrive, shine, and feel fully alive in all aspects of your life. It's equal parts informative, insightful, and inspiring. My guests and I share information and perspectives on a wide variety of topics to help you awaken and simply be and become a more aware and connected human aligned to their greatest truths, values, and potential. Remember, the world needs your unique spark in action. So let's breathe deep, shine bright, and light up the world a few shades brighter. Hey there, and welcome to episode 137, Four Myths About Teaching Kids Mindfulness. Oh my goodness, I should have tracked over the years of doing this work. Many of you know I've been sharing, um, gosh, over a decade now, uh, all the comments about teaching kids mindfulness and what that means, or if you have kids and you're a practitioner, your kids must be, you know, X, Y, and Z. So I wanted to share some myths that you might be hearing and maybe some ways just to have conversations around them to help those that are just learning about mindfulness, yoga, mindset practices, Uh, They're curious about introducing them to their kids and to have some realistic expectations about these tools. So let's just dive right in. This is, uh, I think, a quick episode just to share some some things that have come across my experience over the years. And so as you engage in conversations with others, I want you to be aware that these may come up and what you can say. So four myths about teaching kids mindfulness. Now, the number one thing that I've heard over the years is, or this idea that when you teach kids these tools, the behavior problems will be non-existent. <laughs> that is a big no. And, and there might be the question, well, what's the point if it's not going, if, if behavior problems still exist? Well, here's the thing. We're human. We're not going to be perfect. And our kids are kids. They're growing. You know, they are learning the tools in a developmentally appropriate way, but they're also going to be changing their relationship to the tools and how they're um, how they're relating to them conceptually. Yes, they're going to practice them. They're going to learn self-management. They're going to learn that self-regulation. And the behavior problems that kids exhibit will still exist because they're still growing. They're still learning that self-management and self-regulation. I mean, if we are honest, aren't we still learning that as adults, you know? Um, our, our kids' brains aren't fully developed until 25, you know, and the, the seed of self-regulation is in our prefrontal cortex. And when we practice these tools, we're connecting that bottom-up, it's called bottom-up, top-down, where we're connecting that prefrontal cortex to that older, more reactive, uh, you know, reptile brain. And we're bringing that awareness to our emotions, our triggers, 
you know, learning to speak with more kindness, uh, learning to self-advocate. This is, this is a journey. This is quite a journey. And the reason why these tools are so important is because as our kids are growing and developing, they need healthy coping mechanisms. You know, it's not that, hey, at, you know, when I'm in high school or college, now it's time to learn about this. Absolutely not. This is and part of the work that I do in schools is advocating that this be integrated into the curriculum, the foundation of how we are educating our children academically, socially, emotionally, that those two things that we are educating them wholly. So behavior problems will occur. This is, that's like saying, you know, in a sense, if we didn't, if we just not, if we didn't think about teaching kids mindfulness, we're teaching, you know, we were looking at the adult context here and we're learning these tools. It's like saying, oh, well, when you learn mindfulness and yoga, meditation, you're not going to have any more challenges. Well, that's crazy. Of course you are. Life is about challenge. Uh, you know, we have different emotions every day. There are different people coming in and out of our lives. The world's becoming more complex. Things we're going to be able to manage much more um, efficiently and much more in a much more healthy way. Because of these tools, we're going to be able to change our relationship to the stress, to the trigger that evokes a strong emotion or negative thought. And sometimes certain events and people and places can pull us right back into this, the place and space where it's almost like we don't even have those tools, you know, and that's normal, that's natural. So if you come into contact with anyone, you know, about, oh, okay, this is going to solve all of the behavior problems. This is, there are going to be no more you know, um, detentions in school. We're going to get rid of that. We're going to get rid of expelling students and those, you know, really high um, behavior cases that, um, you know, sometimes those kinds of consequences do need to occur regardless of the fact that these kinds of practices are being implemented in a school, in a camp, in your own home. So they will exist. The goal and what happens with using these tools is they will happen less frequently. Uh, sometimes they'll happen with not as much uh, verbosity, maybe. Is that the word I'm looking for? Intensity, maybe. But sometimes they will, you know, and things aren't black and white. So there are many layers to this. What they do is help our kids start identifying their inner world. They're learning that language of, oh, this is what it feels like when I'm getting angry or sad and this is what I can do to help me cope with that, to help me manage that. When I'm taking a test, right? Like, oh, this is what anxiety feels like. This is what I can do. I've seen it so many times over the years, you know, doing this work, how vitally important 
these tools are and the impact, the positive impact they can have in the lives of our kids and our families and our schools and our educators out there. So that's myth buster number one. Um, Behavior problems will exist. They will continue to exist as long as we're humans on this planet. Uh, You know, again, it's like saying uh, you would never have relationship problems. You learn tools and then you apply them in those challenges. So it's going to increase that emotional and mental resilience to overcome those challenges, both for the child, the teacher, the parent, whoever else is involved in that relationship with the young person. All right. So number two, myth number two is that when you teach kids mindfulness, they're going to become little Zen masters. They're all, they're just, they're going to know all the tools. They're going to use them all the time. Not the case, right? Like, and if you're listening to this and you're practicing, you know that so many factors go into when you're able to use these tools with the most uh, efficacy that, it, a lot of it depends on um, your body budget. I learned that phrase from uh, Lisa Feldman. What is her last name? She wrote the, the um, hang on, I'm going to find it for you guys. Is it Brown? She wrote How Emotions Are Made. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Not the wrong impression, but the wrong, yeah. Oh, no, not Brown. Lisa Feldman Barrett. She talks about body budget a lot, and I really liked that. It's definitely true how we either react or respond depends on are we hungry? Did we eat too much? Do we get enough sleep? Uh, how are, how's our creativity going? Uh, are we uh, active in any creative endeavors? Are we getting enough outside time? What are our relationships like? A lot of factors play into our ability to use these tools to their ultimate, um, I don't know, to their ultimate um, power, I guess. And it doesn't mean that if, you know, your body budget isn't 100% that, you know, don't use the tools, they don't matter. If you're not going to be a Zen master, you know, it doesn't matter. Absolutely not. It's a practice. It's a journey. I've seen many times where young people are using them with integrity and they're doing awesome and some days they just, their body budgets aren't there. They need that co-regulation from the adult in their life to help them along the way and and even just thinking about us, right? Like we need that co-regulation too sometimes as adults. So they're not going to become little Zen masters. There are some young people that have personalities that absolutely would fit that. They learn some mindfulness and meditation yoga tools, but they have the demeanor. They, In a sense, they were born, they were wired that way. Many of us just are not. We uh, may be wired more reactively. And so it's going to take a lot more practice to really implement these tools Uh, to have their most benefit. So that's myth number two. Myth number three, they will know how to self-regulate the rest of their lives. So what I mean by that, it's okay, let me, if we think teaching young people a mindfulness-based social-emotional learning lesson one time or a few times in grade one, and then we're not going to revisit it until grade five, you know, there's no continuity with what they're learning. I think that's a big mistake. 
the tools of self-regulation are a practice that should be embedded into how we just do life. You know, there is a sense of you use it or you lose it. You know, think back to anything that you've learned. And if you're not using it all the time, you're not actively using it um, or can recall it. Um, You get rusty. These are the kinds of tools that help you build healthy habits from the inside out. No matter what you're going to do. Especially in a world where we have no idea what our kids are going to be doing when they come out of college. Their jobs are changing so quickly with technology, etc. That the skills of adaptability, mental flexibility, cognitive flexibility, uh, relationship building, working with teams, working with people is hard. You need uh, you know, a strong emotional intelligence. You need that emotional resilience, mental resilience. You need to be able to regulate those strong emotions. That's a daily practice. Again, thinking about all those factors, right? Like that can come in in these different stages of our development. And plus we're changing neurophysiologically and chemically as we're, you know, developing from a six-year-old. We get into our teens and we're going to relate to this, you know, these tools very differently than we did at five we're going to relate to these a little differently when we're, you know, 20 in our 20s. So experience also plays a big role in how we take on these tools. So um, you're not going to learn, you know, a few lessons and no self-regulation for the rest of your life. You're not going to take like a self-regulation test in, you know, fifth grade and know that you've got it. You know, I... When I test um, my students for understanding and check for understanding, I'm I'm certainly asking questions about terms that they know we talk about, one of them being self-regulation, and that's important, right? Like, are they getting the, the material? Are they understanding? That's to make sure that whatever you're sharing, it's actually processing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that because they learned it that one time, that they've got it. So it's something that has to be scaffolded over time, built upon, built upon, and integrated into their life in a way that makes sense for them. And that's part of the journey, the beautiful journey in showing these tools and teaching these tools to our young people because they'll have that foundational knowledge and within each grade, if I have anything to do with it, you know, part of my big crazy goal is that they are exposed to this type of education in every grade as they developmentally change and connect to the world in new ways and understand themselves as their self-awareness increases and they become more in tune with who they are and form that identity as they get into their teens uh, and later teen years. Okay, so myth number four is that they will always be calm. Oh, wow, you are a mindfulness teacher. Your kids must always be calm all the time. Are you calm all the time? Absolutely not. This is like the number one myth that because you you teach these tools or because you have kids at home or you're teaching your students on a daily basis, they're, they're really calm all the time. Wow, you know, I see the difference. Wow, everybody needs to learn this because we're going to eliminate all anger, all behavior problems 
oh, wow, this is the silver bullet. That's just not the case. Are they going to be calm more often than not? Yes, because they're going to have the tools to cultivate that when they need it. And sometimes when they need it, they won't. Like we talked about a few moments ago. Sometimes what what we're able to do, uh, the stressors coming our way are just outweighing what our nervous system can really take on and regulate. Like we just can. And that's usually when we start seeing behavior problems. We start behavior problems, like issues, like where a young person cannot manage their emotion. They're acting out. Maybe there's physical aggression. Maybe they are saying things that are disrespectful, unkind. They're hurting those around them with their words. Uh, They're disengaged. You know, this is where like stressors coming from the outside, we're not able to even take that on. This is where that co-regulation piece is really important. As, As we are practicing the tools, we can help our kids come back online because there's been a disconnect between that prefrontal cortex, that part of us that can self-manage and self-regulate and that bottom-up part, that reptile brain, you know, that like reactivity just coming straight from, from, the, from, the, from the body that's being completely dysregulated from all of these sens- sensory experiences that are just too much. Right? And it could be any of the factors I listed earlier, not enough food, too much food, not the right food, sleep, too much technology, relationships not good, too much fighting in the household, friendships, no friendships, uh, all those could play factors in our ability to not, <clears throat> for our kids even learning these tools, not to be able to self-regulate and get to that point of calm. Now, is that the goal? Yes, because when we have a calm state of mind, we can engage in learning much more effectively. You know, any of you know that if you're really upset and angry, it's incredibly challenging. Like, it's hard to learn. You can't read, you know, you're sitting there trying to look at a book and read words, but you're so upset. And to know the tools to be able to get back to the state to... um to of the state of regulation to be able to do that is super key but those are going to change over time as you develop you know you um the hope is is that as you you know you grow up in age you're going to mature more emotionally you've been learning these tools you are going to keep decreasing those moments of um dysregulation you're going to learn more about yourself you've been using these tools with, um, you know, you've been using them regularly with efficacy and you're really, you know, making that difference for yourself and others by getting to that more regulated calm state. Doesn't mean that you're not going to flip your lid. And that's where that co-regulation comes in from our parents and our teachers. So those are just some myths I wanted to throw out there. Some people uh, that are not into as as deeply as you may want to be or are may ha- have these statements come your way. And so I want you to be able to talk about them in, um, in a constructive way with those that may be saying them. And, and that's okay. Let's, let's break these myths and say, you know what, uh, we're all humans on a journey and we're learning and these tools are 
still foundational, even though we're not always going to be calm, we're going, you know, often when I, when I'm training teachers is that we're, we're changing our relationship to these hard things. So it's really like that, that adaptability, the flexibility mentally, cognitively, emotionally, the resilience that we're building. And we're able to pick ourselves up off the ground. You know, um, when we've had maybe a flipper lid episode, we didn't handle it well. And we can learn to navigate that with more maturity and ease. Uh, apologize and get, you know, engage in that repair process much more quickly. I hope that this was helpful. Um, and if you found it helpful, definitely share with your people and, um, tag, tag me out on social media, take a screenshot. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to episode 137 here on mindful living with Athea Davis for myths about teaching kids mindfulness. I am always voting your victory, loving you. Remember to put your spark out there in the world. Your spark in action matters. So I hope something in this episode inspired you, empowered you to uh, connect with your truth and your authenticity greater to to become more in alignment with your best self and to put your spark out there for others to shine brighter as well. Because when your spark is in action, you help make the world a few shades brighter. All right, tune into and spread the awesome sauce here, there, and everywhere. Loving you, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening. I hope today's episode brought you tons of value and made your day feel a little extra vibrant. Share it with your people and take a moment to subscribe to the show. And let's stay connected. You can follow me on social media at Athea Davis, A-T-H-E-A-D-A-V-I-S, at Athea Davis, or visit my website, atheadavis.com, to sign up for The A-List, my free mindful living monthly resource, keeping you in the know for all the things to help you grow and glow. And... You can also learn more about my programs, books, and resources. Until next time, have an awesome sauce day in every way.